Welcome to Day 2 Cloud. Today, we are talking large language models and developing products that utilize them with Philip Carter. He's the principal PM over at Honeycomb, and he actually developed one of these products, and he uh, he ran some interesting challenges, didn't he, Ethan? He did. He worked on a product called Query Assistant that if you're struggling to know how to get data out of Honeycomb and what questions to ask it, Query Assistant will help write that query for you using AI and LLMs. And Philip gets into a great deal of detail of what the LLM can do, can't do, how he worked around a bunch of the challenges, and is extremely knowledgeable and enthusiastic, Ned, about his product and project. Yeah, he was just a fantastic guest. So enjoy this show with Philip Carter, Principal PM over at Honeycomb IO. Philip, welcome to Day 2 Cloud. We're very excited to talk to you all about LLM and AI. But first, tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Uh, so yeah, I'm Philip. I am a principal product manager at Honeycomb. Uh, we are an observability tool company. Uh, if anybody is in the business of site reliability engineering or platform engineering or, or you know, I guess the umbrella of DevOps, uh, they probably know about observability to some extent. Uh, we are one of the many companies building many different products uh, in that space. Well, and can you elaborate a little bit on what Honeycomb does and what the offering is? Because I think that's going to be germane to the conversation is to understand what the, the core product is. Yeah. Yeah. So so the general concept behind it is, uh, you know, even if you have like a monolithic application, you know, modern deployment practices, especially when you're in the cloud, like... You can't just like pull the cloud down onto your local machine and debug it when something goes wrong. Uh, you know, if you try, you can maybe pull part of your code base down and reproduce a bug that that got filed onto your systems. But like increasingly, what we're seeing uh, pretty much every every year is that there the the complexity of an issue is super high. Like it's it's not just the code that's wrong, but the code is wrong because of the particular pattern that somebody is using with a particular. Uh, piece of the cloud, whether it's serverless or one of the database, one of the million database services and like AWS or something like that. And, um, you know, how do you debug this when, when like a slice of users are seeing a latency increase, but nobody else is, or there's like an error spike, but like, it's only coming from like one data center or, or, you know, a, a million dimensions of, of possibilities of things that, that could be going wrong. And so the answer is you need good observability tooling where you collect data known as telemetry that is rich information about what's actually happening live in the real world with your apps. You send it to a tool, in this case, Honeycomb, that allows you to analyze that data and slice and dice based off of all kinds of different things. Like when you say, well, what's my average latency like? Okay, that's kind of cool. But can I group that by endpoints? Can I group that by any arbitrary field in my schema, right? Can I group it by user ID? That's where things get interesting. That's where Honeycomb starts to really uh, stand out amongst the crowd. Because typically when you're using tools like Prometheus or even most of Datadog um, uh, and a bunch of other um, proprietary solutions like that, uh, you end up in a situation where there's like certain things that you can do, but then other things you, you kind of can't do. You can't just like tag a user ID on requests and expect your bill to be okay. Uh, or expect your query times to be okay. Like you want to query that and now all of a sudden you have to wait like five minutes for results on something when you needed that result right now. Uh, what Honeycomb does is we have shaped our querying engine such that if you have sort of a line of data, say it's like a structured log or, or a span inside of a trace, 
whether you have one field on it or you have a thousand fields, it costs the same to query that information and arbitrarily group by pretty much anything. And so you can go in truly and have like, you know, I do not know what is wrong, but I can group by anything. I can hold one value constant and see what else is different across everything else and really narrow in, uh, narrow down my problem space to like a specific thing that I'm looking for. Um, this is, this is, we consider this to be true observability, to be able to say, you know, I don't have predefined things like dashboards that I'm going to look at, and that's going to help me solve my stuff. It's like every new problem could potentially be unique, and we're going to be able to do that and and make it as, as fast as possible to analyze. So that, that's, I don't know, kind of our, our high-level pitch, I guess. No, that's great, man. And it's, it's funny that you say you don't know what you're going to have to search for, because I was just reading a, a post-mortem that Microsoft published about Azure DevOps going down in uh, South Brazil, I think. And it was a very unique way that the whole thing broke and they've put in mitigations to fix that thing. But you just know that it's going to break in a new and exciting way later. And it's going to be like, I always need to be able to query or figure out what that new exciting way things have broken because I've already fixed the ways that I know it can break. Right, right. One, one thing that we say is everybody tests in production. It's just a question of how deliberate they are about it. <laughs> and, and similarly, like as a corollary to that, every problem that you face is going to be unique. Like, you know, you know, you can, I guess, regress something that like you fixed beforehand, but more likely than not, it's going to be changes you make either to your app or your infrastructure or something uh, that's going to break something in new and exciting ways that nobody is happy about. And really it comes down to like, how fast can you identify what's going on and how fast can you remediate it so that, you know, it's like a five minute problem as opposed to a, a, a four full 24 day outage where everybody is extremely unhappy. <laughs> and of course it could be something that the cloud services themselves changed versus something that you changed. Uh, and one possible solution for figuring that out uh, because it's in the zeitgeist right now is using AI to somehow magically fix your problems. And I understand you wrote a whole blog post about how you've been working to add AI to Honeycomb service in, in a deliberate way. So let's start with some basics. Um, what are you trying to add to the Honeycomb service and what type of AI are we talking about here? Yeah, so... Um... I'll be kind of like a, I'll explain it from like a zoomed out stance and then, and then kind of dig in specifically to the the, the exact thing that we decided sure. to focus on. So the reason why you would use AI pretty much anything is for, pretty much frankly, is because AI and these machine learning systems are non-deterministic and they're probabilistic. They, they, they produce a value or predict a value or classify a value with some degree of certainty, but it's, it's very rarely is it going to ever be like 100% certainty. Like you're, the, 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 the problem space is like tiny if you can do things with 100% certainty. Um, and so that means that they're good for some things and really not good for other things. Uh, if you are in a space in, in your product or some workflow that you're in where there's no real right answer every time, like there, there's sort of like varying degrees of correct for what you're trying to do. That's where machine learning can really come in and, and help. And with that, there's a whole host of different kinds of machine learning models and techniques that can be applied to things. Um, and one of them is the large language model family of systems such as ChatGPT or GitHub Copilot, or there's a whole bunch of open source models that are that are available now. 
Um, and they're all still serving the same purpose, right? Like given set of inputs, like a, like a, you, you, you want to accomplish something, you want to have it output a thing and some data or context that sort of helps it create, you know, the solution that you're looking for. Uh, you want to get some solution to what you're trying to do that is some degree of correct. And you need to figure out, okay, like what are my bounds of, of correctness here and what is useful versus what is not too useful. It's all kind of abstract. In terms of this domain, uh, the, the domain of software reliability, we kind of have a stance that AI ops, as has, as has existed for a bit of time, is kind of a misapplication of AI. Because what a lot of it tends to come down to is A, anomaly detection, and B, um, alerting somebody based off of often that anomaly detection. And we had that before. Is that why you mean it's a misapplication of AI? Yeah, we, we kind of believe that it is because a lot of people at the end of the day who get paged on that stuff, so they really don't like it when it's a false positive. I mean, you can get false yep. positives without AI already. Right. Now you have like a layer of false positives on top of your other potential false positives that, that you already have. Now you're waking somebody up at two in the morning for machine said something was wrong, but nothing is wrong. Or you can get the inverse. Nobody got woken up at two in the morning because machine thought something was fine when something was actually not fine. Mm -hmm. And that's where like you now need to have this sort of thing that you're building for where you're like, okay, well, we have this AI solution, but we're not going to rely 100% on that because what if it is wrong about something? And the absolute nightmare scenario is that it says everything is fine. And Something is clearly not fine. So we need a system that can tell us when something is actually not fine. And it's like, well, why do you, to some extent, why do you need the AI system in the first place? And so part of the, part of yeah. the solutions that are sold there are you can use it to reduce your volume of alerting. Well, actually the better way to reduce your volume of alerting is to not alert on so many things in the first place. Uh, and it's kind of like, it's, it's sort of like solving, I guess, like a fake problem in that sense. Um, the anomaly detection one is also really, really difficult to, to some extent, you can actually get it to work where like, if you have um, services with very normal traffic patterns, you know, like, let's say you have some, so you're, you're working for a company that does like some sort of streaming service, uh, streaming video. Uh, and during, during evenings, people watch the stuff that you're streaming. Well, okay. Like you're, you're probably going to have more traffic in the evenings and less during the daytime when people are working. So like, that's probably pretty predictable. Except for if you get like a new content on there that goes absolutely bonkers and everybody wants to watch it. Now, all of a sudden, it's totally wild. And like, how are you going to know what content is going to go absolutely buck wild versus not like you you can't. And so then, you know, that that AI stuff could probably help you determine anomalies for those normal times. But there's no way that it can tell the difference between like the systems are wrong versus there's actually just a ton of people hitting this stuff right now. Uh, and that's, that's where th that's, uh, it ends up not really solving the big problems that people have with software reliability. And I think that's also why a lot of AI ops has really just not taken off right now. Uh, like most, most customers who I talk to, they don't, you know, they, they come from, they come from another tool that has an AI ops solution to honeycomb and they're there's not really using the AI ops part of like, say it's new relic or data, like every, every major company has, has something there um, because they just don't see much utility in it. So our approach was, we don't want to try to build another AI ops thing. Like we could, 
we could, in theory, make it a checkbox and like our sales checklist and probably get some new business by doing that because there are some people, it typically tends to be something that people buy uh, an observability product for, but then they don't really end up using it. And uh, we don't, our, our founders are very, um, they're, they're like, they're businessy, but they're like not really businessy, especially one of them, Charity. <laughs> She's, uh, Charity Majors is very, uh, um, very different, I think, from most people that you would expect holding like a founder title or a C-level title at a company. Um, she uses a lot of swear words when she talks about stuff that people she have definitely to put up does. With. Yes. Yes. <laughs> um, so like we, we have a lot of that same company culture of like, well, we don't want to build stuff. This is a checklist. We want to build stuff that actually helps people solve a problem. And so we looked at, okay, people are getting into our product because of our, basically our querying engine. We got a lot of good product market fit from site reliability engineers in particular, but especially platform engineers. Now, these are folks who often know a bit of the shape of their data. They often kind of know what they're looking for. And really they're like, they're, they're totally embracing the idea of, you know, I need the most flexible possible querying engine to be able to see what's happening in, in my production traffic. What they struggle with the most is in those organizations they're working for, they're trying to work either in, in concert with a top level mandate or build this mandate themselves of service ownership across their companies, because you know, who in theory knows the data the best than the developers who are actually building those services themselves instead of the ones who are just operating it. And like, mm -hmm. let's not have these walls between people who operate stuff and people who build stuff. Let's make operating it part of building stuff. And then as the platform team, we can, you know, we can focus on things like building patterns and practices and helping the entire organization just do things better. Um, and they struggle mightily with getting developers who are not used to reliability tools to use Honeycomb because they see the UI, the querying UI, and they, they're like, I don't, I don't know what to click on. Like, I don't even know what to type here. I don't even know what I'm looking for. I don't even know, like, I maybe have some idea of like, usually latency or error rates and kind of something in between, maybe grouped by endpoint, maybe like, I know that I own the service that talks to Auth0, so I care about like, are my calls to Auth0 authentication working correctly? Like, you know, things like that. But I don't know how to express this in this product shape. And all the platform folks are like, well, we've used these tools for a long time. So like, obviously, you know how to just use this. But then developers are like, well, no, I, I kind of don't. Uh, and we, we, we've, we've seen a lot of just these teams hit these walls where like they want to expand with Honeycomb. They literally want to pay us more money, but they can't get their developers to just use the thing and thus allow that cycle of like paying us more money. And we're like, okay, well, I mean... Yes, let's let's try to work on that. And so that's where what I said earlier about machine learning being good at probabilistic stuff. Like people come in with a mental model often of what they tend to care about when they're working on a service. But to translate that into a, a UI interaction can be really hard, especially if they're not familiar with that kind of UI, uh, especially if they're not familiar with like querying data of irregular shapes. Turns out machine learning models are really good at taking natural language text with these LLMs. They're really good at taking natural language text and turning them into some kind of structured text that represents a thing that you care about. In this case, this thing is, is a honeycomb query. So it turns out that the, the honeycomb query itself, when you use the querying UI, is literally a JSON specification of like, you know, here's clauses for what you can visualize by, what you can group by, what you can 
filter by, what you can order things by. You can you can you can do uh, post calculation filterings and and that kind of stuff. Uh, there's like time range rules and and there's like lists of operators for comparisons, lists of visualization operators. There's rules for like what you can put in them versus what you can't. Um, but it all it's, it all comes out as just a block of JSON. And so the theory was, well, can we take natural language input, like give me latency by status code and turn that into a block of JSON that you can execute on a querying engine that is actually like what a latency by status code query would look like if somebody were to like manually do it inside of our query builder. Okay. How did you build the data set to train the machine learning model on? So that's the fun thing. We didn't. Oh, that's so uh, please forgive my uh, like fourth grader understanding of LLM. So they're pre-trained on a corpus of, of data that they find places, but you can also add additional context through prompt engineering. Is that sort of the, the general process to get it ready to spit out the queries you're looking for? Or tell me I'm wrong. Tell me there's more to it. <laughs> No, this is this is totally correct. So um, prior to large language models really sort of being broadly accessible to people, if you wanted to do something like this, yes, you you would need to have a data science and ML engineering team that their responsibility was creating an ML model based off of your data. And like, you know, fundamentally, what are we after here? Natural language inputs, JSON outputs, that JSON has to be shaped a particular way. And you have to train it through a lot of standard mechanisms that people have trained things over the past more than a decade at this point. Um, and then you get a model at the end, and then you got to figure out how you're going to operationalize it and deploy it and that kind of stuff. This is how machine learning has worked at every company that has done machine learning systems for quite a while. It's a very expensive, very, very expensive operate, operation because you have, you're, you're hiring at least five people to do this kind of thing. Um, not to mention needing to learn how to do all kinds of different data pipelining stuff that somebody might not be familiar with. Prompt engineering is very different. And the reason why it works with large language models is because the large language models in their name are large enough to have so much information that they are pre-trained on that instead of needing to sort of say, well, I'm going to do that training myself, if you can nudge it with instructions to just sort of select text based off of how it knows that things are represented already in a way that you want you can get basically the same outputs as if you have created your own machine learning model. Now, it's an extremely difficult process to do this. Like, like you know, there, there's, 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 a, there's a million different prompt engineering techniques that you can do. They all have lots of different names. They all work better in some cases versus other cases. But the, the general principle is you, you have a shape of output that you want it to be able to produce in a text format. So you describe what that actually should be. You give it data or context, as it's often called, that says, hey, this is, and this is what you're working with. Uh, and then you tend to give it some additional information, like if there's particular domain knowledge. So for example, uh, there is a field in a lot of people's data called trace.parent underscore ID. Now, when trace.parent underscore ID does not exist, that means you're dealing with a root span and a trace, which means a request. And so there's no way this language model knows that. So you need to actually encode that into your prompting so that you can say, okay, well, this like 
very ultra specific representation inside of a query actually means requests. And so when somebody says, show me slow requests, you need to plant that thing inside of a honeycomb query. But that's not training. That's not identifying the model. It's it's, it's subtly different, it sounds like. It, it is, yeah. In, in a sense, you could almost think of it as like every single time you send a prompt to the large language model, you're sort of like on the fly training it for like that very specific thing that you're doing. Uh, I don't know if that analogy quite holds up. It's hmm. um, what I like to think of it more of is, is these are incredibly smart autocomplete machines. And it's your job as the prompt engineer to nudge that autocompletion engine in the right direction all the time. And, and that can be, that can be really weird and funky because like, there's no good tools for doing this. You, there's no debugging a large language model. You don't know how it, like Hmm. why it selected the next token of text that it's selecting. Um, And so that, that's where, that's where all the work actually ends up going into. Well, so a key question here is once you tell it the information that this is a request because it's missing this particular field. Is that something that it only knows for that particular session? Or is that something that it can retain over multiple sessions? Uh, so you don't have to sort of retrain it every time. Uh, yeah, it, it, there's no retention at all. It's it's like it's a like a black box of inputs and outputs each time. And so that is also one of the challenges of prompt engineering is how do I craft a prompt and at, the point, at this point, it actually does become an engineering practice of measuring inputs and outputs and seeing how changes affect things, of saying, okay, well, how do I get it so I can package up literally all the information that this thing is going to need every single time such that it will reliably produce something that's valuable, produce something that's accurate, and also stay within the limitations of the API that you're using. It's a lot like, uh, have you ever seen the movie Memento? Yes. Yeah. So you like, Basically, the LLMs are the guy from Memento. Every time you send a query, they're trying to look at all the tattoos on their body to figure out what context they need to. to <laughs> and you're trying to add more tattoos, but you're using temporary tattooing. That might have fallen apart on me, but <laughs> it's actually a good analogy. That, that that actually does work well because, like, if you think about it, the the guy in the movie, right? Like, his brain is an incredible machine at being able to make a decision and do something with the information that he has. Unfortunately, he's very limited on what information that he can like pipe into his brain uh, for the important tasks. <laughs> okay, so let's let's go a layer deeper here in terms of what you built. Um, I believe it's called a qu- the query assistant. So what's a what's a simple version of how users would interact with that to build a query? Right. So um, I'll just back up a little bit uh, okay. because the the way that we approach this was not. How do we put AI into our product? But what problems can we solve with, with using AI? And in this case, everything within Honeycomb is based around querying your data. Uh, in, in fact, uh, many features within our product that have different names are actually literally just queries in a different shape or you know, a collection of queries or a query run on a cron job with a particular you know, filter on the result and some bounds that you want to have it be on or, you know. I, I won't go too into the weeds on that, but um, it is all at its root is about querying your data in a way that makes sense to you. And the problem that 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 I that I mentioned earlier is that tons of new people come in, whether they're new on a team or or they're literally first time using Honeycomb ever, is they have a mental model in their head of what they want to express, but they don't know how to express it in the UI. And then they just they go, eh, all right, well, I don't know how to use this. I have other things I could do. So I'm just gonna go do those things instead. 
And so we put a text box in there where people type out what they want and then they hit enter or they click the button that says get query. And what it will do is it will call the large language model with our prompt um, that also has their input inside of it. And it comes back with a JSON blob that represents, you think of it like a best effort at mapping a query to, to you know, what, what their input was. And then we then, um, we do a bunch of work to like fix it up depending on certain things. So, you know, it has to follow a particular structure. And if there's part of that structure is invalid, but it's considered fixable because we know that we can like plop something into another spot that then makes it valid, uh, we will do that. Or if there's certain detectable things that are wrong, we will actually just remove those things that are wrong. And then it will then become a valid query that we validate and then run against our querying engine. And then you get to see the results of, of what you typed out. So you see, um, in addition to that, we also have these little bubbles at the bottom that people can click if they're not really sure what they want to type. So like the three of them are, uh, what are my errors, question mark, uh, slow requests, and latency distribution by status code. Uh, these are extremely common uh, things that people tend to tend to express that they want. And so we we actually we source those by talking with a bunch of new users and being like, hey, in your head, before you ever like look at this interface, what are you trying to get out of it? And it's pretty much some flavor of those three questions, at least initially. And so that helps people, you know, know what they can type. And then uh, we found that this puts people in a bit of a virtuous uh, uh, feedback loop where they typed something or they clicked the, the suggested query button for, for the, the natural language thing. And then they get a honeycomb query, it runs, they can see like what this actually was. They can then either like further refine it with the text box and say, oh, actually filter by this service or you know something, whatever they wanna do. Or they can just manually click where like, you know, in the group by clause, you see there's things that are in there now and they see that there's two things in there and they go, oh, wow. I can group by more than one thing. A lot of people are actually not aware that you can group by as many columns as you want inside of our UI. And that's actually a lot where a lot of the power comes from because a lot, a lot of tools don't let you do more than one grouping or they, they max, max it to like three or something like that. And so they'll just click on it and the little list will pop up of like, here's additional columns you can group by. And they're like, oh, cool. Yeah, I'll, I'll do that. Oh, what if I click in this one? Oh, cool. And um, it, 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 it increases people's activity and often they, they they end up in a situation where they are effectively graduated from using the natural language system because now they they know how to like click around and use the product and they're like all right cool I I can just do that that's great so I don't know that's like high level what we do that's sort of the main purpose there's a lot of details under the covers of how that actually works and that's that's where all the challenges that we encountered in trying to build this thing. Um, uh, that, that's basically what I wrote about my, uh, uh, yeah. blog post about this. Stuff. We'll talk about some of those limitations. You mentioned, uh, challenges with context windows and slowness of the services as, uh, some of the initial limitations that you ran into. Oh yes. Yeah. So the context window one is, is a big one. Um, I'm not yet convinced that there's actually a complete solution to all of this. So these large language models, they're, they're not, they're not magic, unfortunately, uh, they, they, they accept input in text. Well, there's a limit to the amount of text that you can give it. And the way that they count this limit is both input and output for a, a given session. And so they count it via tokens, at least OpenAI does. Tokens follow a standard uh, byte pair encoding uh, system where they, they encode the text to represent a thing that they call a token. 
Um, there's a standard algorithm they use that's open source that you can then, you know, you can like validate it in your own environment because like they have like a Python implementation, but if you're not in Python in your own apps, well, like you can at least see how it works and you'd be like, okay, well, we can either shell out to Python or we can um, get a port of this in like .NET or, or Go or, you know, whatever language. So that now you have your basis for how big of an input and how big of an output you can have before it errors out and says, sorry, context window exceeded, try again later. That you then you then have to figure out, okay, there's a certain amount of space that has to be reserved for user input, certain amount of space that has to be reserved for user output. And in our case, there's there's two additional pieces. There's what we call a static part of the prompt. And this is just like domain knowledge, like just instructions. In our case, we actually have some examples of input, expected output, input, expected output. And then there's a block that's the dynamic part of the prompt. And this is the, the list of the field names in somebody's schema that they're querying against. And so this is not a problem for people who are new to Honeycomb, who are like trying it out with a simple app. It's not a problem for small businesses or even medium-sized businesses. Uh, but we have some customers with well over 10,000 unique fields in one of many different schemas. <laughs> okay. And... Uh, that is not going to fit in the context window. The API that we're using uh, allows for 4096 tokens, accounting both input and output in its entirety. Um, I tested it on their 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 schema with their with their permission. I was kind of curious. Uh, it would require like well over 10 LLM calls to actually fit their entire schema in there. And that's just unworkable. Mm -hmm. um, so, well, poop. What do you do? Um, there's there's several different options available. So the first is uh, there are these techniques in prompt engineering called called uh, chaining or um, I think they call it like MapReduce. It's, it's, really, it's really just parallelization. The idea is in one of them, you can say, okay, I have this block representing the schema. I'm going to chunk it up and then I'm going to iterate through each chunk where I know that each chunk is going to fit inside of a, a single call. And then what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask the large language model in addition to producing the output that I want. I'm going to ask it to score that output. Be like, okay, how likely do you think this is actually answering the question? I'm going to save that. I'm going to do the next one. I'm going to save that and so on until I, I process all the different chunks. Now you can do this in parallel uh, and, that, and then you sort of pick whatever the highest score is or you apply some other final call that tries to like merge things together and try to create a best of, of all the different results that it has. Or you can do it sequentially. And actually, you, you, the, the, the challenge there with being sequential is you can actually be more accurate because you can feed in the previous score and you can use that. It, you can sort of teach it to like tweak what it did based off of what it produced the last time. The trade-off for there is latency because now instead of one large language model call, you're doing N calls. And if it's a particularly large document or schema that, that you've done, you know, now instead of a five second large language model call, you're doing 10 of those, that's 50 seconds. And let me tell you, when somebody is querying their data in an observability tool, they don't want to wait a whole minute to be able to get the results. <laughs> um, and, and so then when you're in parallel, the, the challenge that you face is also, well, now you need to solve this problem of, I have several results. How do I score which one is actually the best? Do I rely on what the large language model decided to score it? Or do I figure out some other system to determine a better score? Additionally, because in the sequential one, you can, you can pass a bunch of information into subsequent calls um, to get around the idea that the way you've split up this, this thing that you're doing 
was split up in the right way, but you can't do that when you're in parallel. And so now these, you could have sliced up your data such that one chunk contains the best fields that somebody's looking for, for a honeycomb query. And another chunk also contains some of the best fields, but they're unrelated to one another. And how do you know that now? Well, you, you, you can't, and the large language models can't know that either. And so like, again, you now have an accuracy problem where like you, you, you can, you can potentially get some maybe accurate scores, but it's uh, you really have no idea. Like it's better to just have the whole thing that you're, that they're grabbing, but you can't fit the whole thing in there. And so it, like, again, this is like just a problem that you have to deal with. And it's really hard to tell which one is the best. Additionally, both of those things, you're making multiple calls to large language models. Well, that's, that's instead of instead of one call that costs you money, you're now doing 10 calls that cost you money. And it costs you more money, the more tokens that you're using. And so uh, it, 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 there, there's really like no good solution there. So then we move on to other things. So there was a new large language model that just came out uh, from a company called Anthropic. They have a large language model called Cloud, which is amazing. It's really great. We actually experiment with it. And they call it large context windows. They have 100,000 tokens per per call, uh, so which is... Yeah, that's that's the question I was going to ask is, is that context window limitation just an artificial limitation that they've placed on it because of their own internal requirements or, you know, they need to make money, so they have to do it per per request? Um, or is there some larger issue that that is a hard limit on the context windows? And it sounds like there's no hard limit. It's just the way that they design the service. It, yeah, it's the way they design the service. It is also the design of the model itself. So each each new mo each model that has larger context windows is actually a subtly different model. Mm. Um, so like, for example, GPT-4 has four, it's actually, multi I think it's four models themselves, and they each have different context window sizes. Basically, the larger context windows that a model can accept, the slower the model is going to be. Uh, right now, and maybe this will change sometime, right? but like, you know, I'm building and shipping a product right now. So like, this is what I'm dealing with. Um, additionally, the larger space you give yourself to, to create a solution to oops, rather, I should say the larger space you give the large language model to synthesize a solution for you, the more opportunities it has to mess something up. <laughs> so like, if you think about it, if, if there, if there's a very small percentage chance that it's going to select the wrong thing, or it's going to create something that doesn't exist when you need it to, to stay with, within the bounds that you gave it. If you have a very small thing and you say, I want you to just select from this block of text, uh, the chance that it selects something incorrectly or that it's, or that it hallucinates a, a value that doesn't exist is a lot, is a lot smaller. But if you have a much, much bigger one, um, it needs to literally process each name one by one. And so it can screw up a little bit more. And this is literally what we found. We, um, we have an internal data set that's too big to fit inside of the GPT model that we're using. And so we're like, oh, well, what if we pass it to this, this uh, large context window model? That'll solve the problem for us, right? Nope, it didn't. It, it reliably hallucinates a column that does not exist in the data set. And so we're like, okay, this is a problem. Uh, reached out to them and they're like, yep, it can do that sometimes. And we're like, well, uh, okay. Uh, so what do we do now? Well, <laughs> there's another approach that you can take that a lot of people are doing, which is called embeddings. And this is a, a, another act of machine learning that can sometimes also be more, um, more accurate. 
and uh, or 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 less accurate depending on what you're doing, which is which is this is all a, a set of trade-offs. But the general principle behind an embedding is it's based off of a lot of work in natural language processing, where you know computers are good at doing math, and so how do you take a a string of text or or a set of text and turn it into a vector of numbers that represents that text in in sort of a standard way that you can then compare it against similar other vectors in in a similar space of vectors and do all kinds of complex math on it to sort of see like you know which one is more related to this other one um that's sort of the, the problem space of embeddings and there's there's like over a decade's worth of r d done into this to produce machine learning models um that uh i think the most common is called word to vec if you google that you'll probably you'll see a whole bunch of stuff and its job is to turn a string of text into a vector of floats. Um, and then you can apply all these mathematical functions on matrix math, basically, on all these, these different vectors that you have. And different functions will give you different kinds of similarity scores between these vectors based off of what you're looking for. So like there's there's there. If you look up distance functions, you'll find like a hundred different functions. Like there's cosine similarity, Hamming distance, Manhattan distance. Uh, like there, like there's really no one that's good or bad. They're all just sort of like, okay, what does similarity mean for blobs of text? Really, like how likely are these things related or not? That's that's really sort of the problem that it's solving, and you need to figure out which matrix math you're going to be doing that's going to produce the best kind of similarity between these things so you turn these things all into numbers you do this similarity mapping between them all and then you pull them back out the ones that are like the top end most relevant things to it to a given thing that you're comparing against um, and so in our case we take somebody's schema we we take every single column inside of it turns into a vector uh, and then we have their input, their natural language input is also a vector. And these are fixed sizes. They're all encoded the same way. And then we sort of say, hey, there's these, you know, 10,000 other vectors here. Give me the top 50 that are the most similar based off of this mathematical distance function that we're going to apply across all of them. And then we're going to map those back into the column names. And so in practice, I, I call it in my blog post, I call it praying to the dot product gods because, <laughs> you know, Again, it's also not 100% correct. And so you need to figure out, okay, which dot product God and which prayer is gonna be the best here. And like, you know, should we take the top five, or the top 10, or the top 50 or the top 100? And like, you know, you're playing this game of like, okay, in this embedding search that we're doing, we're gonna to try to pull the most relevant stuff. How do we make sure that window is big enough so that we definitely, so that we have a very high likelihood that we have the actually most relevant column names in this set that we pull out. Then how do we also make sure that that set is not too large such that the large language model will now start hallucinating on that set that we provided it. And so in terms of the embeddings, it's not necessarily reliable, but is it, is it at least consistent? Like if you give it the same embedding input with the same query, will it spit out the same answer every time? Or is that also changed depending on the way the wind is blowing in, uh, I don't know, <laughs> Topeka or something? Yeah, so it is consistent, um, okay. which, which, is, which is critical. So you, you do have some degree of reliability here and you can actually test this stuff offline uh, without needing to make a whole bunch of large, whereas the large language model stuff you can actually ask large language models to do the same task, 
but they're non-deterministic. And so that's why like these chaining of these non-deterministic calls to large language models can be so problematic. Whereas if you include something that's like probabilistically, we're going to pick like with, you know, 99 point something percent certainty, these 50 fields that we pull out are going to be like the most relevant to, to what somebody's natural language input is like that you can hold fixed as as a constant whereas you can't guarantee that with uh, large language model calls and so it adds a little bit of reliability into the system it's 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 still not going to be perfect but when i mentioned that that large context window model that we used if i instead ran this similarity search over the same thing that i normally passed it and i actually just passed it the top 10 most relevant columns and that's it the same thing that that can accept this entire schema is only having 10 fields that it's selecting, it actually produces a working query each time because the columns are actually the real columns and it no longer hallucinates. So like, it's probably the right approach, but we're, we're also, we're gonna be testing in production with this where we're, we're actually gonna be measuring, like we have ways that we can measure the error rates that, that we have and the, the, the number of queries that are actually like getting executed and didn't need fix ups as we call them. Uh, and if that one goes down as we roll this thing out, then like we're going to, okay, we're, we probably believe this helped. So you're talking about these different columns that are part of customers' data sets and the information that you're passing back and forth to the LLM. Um, what sort of security concerns did you have with interacting with a, you know, a third-party service with your customers' data? Oh, a ton of them. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I would hope so if you had no concerns I'd be, I'd be concerned yes so uh there's part of what we were after so okay so, so there's a couple things that one key distinction is names of columns in a schema and like the data that backs them are treated very differently so you know either way you can you can encode pii you know in any way, right? Right. Like nothing is stopping a customer from, you know, um, creating a column in their data called, you know, Philip Carter, born in San Luis Obispo, California, September 28th, 1990, you know, <laughs> living in Redmond, Washington, blah, blah, blah. Like, you know, that can be a column name. And yeah, uh, you know, we can't really prevent that. Um, but most organizations tend to do a couple things. They tend to treat like schema and like metadata, that, that kind of stuff, schema information as not as sensitive and, and again there's a little bit of variance in that so like we have some customers who sign uh particular business agreements with us especially those who are operating on hipaa data where that's not true it's treated as just as sensitive as as the actual data itself but most customers don't do that they they actually do see this this metadata as sort of like free game for like yeah make stuff better based off of the names of this stuff please just don't send my actual production data to uh to a service and so um we don't do that but even even just with that, there's a lot of concerns that that you have. One is uh, around data privacy, even ignoring bad actors. So, like you're making these calls to these systems that you don't control. What guarantees do they have around protecting that information? So, OpenAI is is pretty good about that. They uh, you know they have ChatGPT, the application that kind of has inverted defaults compared to their API. So, by you know ChatGPT by design to the application is it is designed to sort of take what you tell it in like your feedback system. You know, you, you ask it for something, it gives you a result. You say, eh, that wasn't right. If you did X, Y, Z, it would be better. 
they, they use that to sort of like on the fly, try to improve their results for a given session. And then they take a very, very, very tiny slice of that by default. And they, they try to improve their systems long-term for everyone. And they're, they're very careful about that because, you know, with many, many millions of users, it's, you know, it's, it's super easy to poison the good that you have. And so, you know, in practice, they don't actually really do much uh, with, with the stuff that you send it, but th there is a possibility that they could, their API is inverted. By default, the only thing that they store is the inputs over a 30-day period for misuse and abuse monitoring. Because, you know, they have certain rules for like, you know, there's all kinds of illegal stuff that you could potentially be trying to do. And, you know, they, they monitor that and like they shut down your 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 account if you're doing that, basically. Mm -hmm. um, but otherwise, they, they they then just discard for 30 days because they're like, well, you know, we want these, we want people to use this in a business context. And, you know, you can't do that if you're going to retain every customer's information from every one, like this transitive customer thing, like you can't, like, you know, it's, it's you're not going to build a business that way. So that also helps quite a bit. And so actually the biggest thing that we've had to do with our own customers is just to clarify that the API and ChatGPT have inverted defaults. And, you know, the data that we are passing is discarded after 30 days. It's not used for any training and it's just for abuse monitoring. And most, uh, every customer who we've, who we've said that to, uh, when, when they, when they brought it up, um, they've been like, oh yeah, okay. Make, makes sense. Um, you know, you know, that's what we would do if we were them. Uh, and so, but then there's also, it's also critical. You have an ability, uh, to turn off a feature. So uh, one of our biggest features of uh, Query Assistant is the user settings thing that, that makes the whole thing disappear. Um, and so uh, some customers are like, for whatever reason, doesn't matter like if, if they dislike AI or if they, they just don't trust it or whatever, they can just turn it off. And then on top of that, we also, if you sign one of those business agreements with us, because you know, you're, you're dealing with HIPAA stuff or something like that, you don't, the feature doesn't even exist as far as you're concerned. Um, we're actually solving that because you can you can sign um, a BAA or a DPA with these other third party providers such as OpenAI and through like transitive like agreements you can basically have it set up and like you know on, on their back end they you know they encrypt all data at rest and transit and and you know they know how to delete stuff based off of you know certain requests and all that so like you know they're they're actually more compliant than we are. Um, we, we thought we had pretty good compliance, but then they, they did a pretty, they, they have a lot of certifications for that kind of stuff, but you, you need to sign that business agreement basically. Cause otherwise it's just not, you know, it's, it's a total non-starter. So that's another factor. Another factor is there's a difference between ambient sending of data and deliberate sending of data. So if you use query assistant and you never you never click the button, you never hit enter, you just typed a thing into it. No machine learning model is ever called. Uh, that, that's very different from a lot of products that do machine learning where like they, they ambiently say, okay, we're doing this on your behalf and now we're gonna surface some information. And like, that doesn't mean that they're bad, but it does mean that, that um, this, this, frankly, it, at least certainly at this stage, helps us a lot with uh, customer anxiety because they're like, oh, it only activates when I tell it to activate. And we're like, yup. And then they're like, oh, cool. Yeah, I, I got a little freaked out at the idea that like maybe it would be scraping a bunch of stuff, uh, you know, that, that I didn't necessarily want it to scrape, um, even if it's like technically okay to do that. And we're like, no, I mean, you know, at some point in the future, we might do something like that. Uh, but, 
you know, right now that's, that's not, that's not a problem. And like, you know, frankly, OpenAI and a bunch of others have a lot of work to do still to sort of really um, earn back some of the trust that they lost in some of the earlier days, especially with uh, the Italian government banning them for a little bit. And like, you know, they, they were able to comply with all that stuff, but like trust takes time to earn back. And so we wanted to, to cordon it off from like a privacy compliance standpoint as much as we could so that it's still a useful feature, but like it only activates when you really want it to, you can turn it off and we're adhering to sort of the business agreements that we have. So Philip, put on your, uh, put on your, your wizard hat, peer into your crystal ball and uh, look into the future for us. What do you see for, for query assistant, which you, you, you know well and love and, uh, and then large language model services in, uh, in the near term future. Yeah, so with Query Assistant, um, there's plenty of things that are that are we're working on right now. Um, there's this embedding system that we're doing. Um, we've added the ability to edit something with uh, edit an existing query with Query Assistant. We also have this part of the product called Suggested Queries, which is different. There's no machine learning at all. It's literally just like a bank of things that you can potentially run, and we just statically determine based off of your schema if it's possible to run this thing, and if it's not, it's just not shown. But it's also customizable. And so large customers, typically, they customize their suggested queries for a given data set. Uh, and then that allows somebody else on the team to say, well, I don't know this, but like I can click on the suggested query. Uh, turns out if you feed those suggested queries into the query assistant prompt, it dramatically increases its uh, accuracy and relevancy of results um, for complex schemas where like, you know, you have a whole bunch of domain knowledge with like very particular names where like, you know, the naming of the thing isn't actually what it really means, but you kind of have to just sort of know that. And, you know, every big business has that kind of stuff. Um, so those are sort of the major ones. The last thing that we're that we're looking into with Query Assistant is some form of intent detection. So we have a feature called Bubble Up, where if you have a if you have a heat map of a distribution of things, you can like select a portion of the heat map, you see like visually a spike. And what it'll do is it'll show you what's different in your data in that selection compared to the rest of the, of of your stuff that you have and it does that all in in parallel it's kind of our marquee feature that like differentiates honeycomb from everybody else but it's not like it's not the default mode that that your query results are in uh it's something you have to activate and so a lot of people ask like why is this slow or what's different about my error requests compared to everything else and we want to be able to, to detect that intent and then put the UI in the right state for that sort of that, the feature called bubble up to sort of have that bubble up context sort of activate and try to automate as much of that as possible. So you can see this, those, those results in that form. Um, that one's a little bit more pie in the sky. So we'll see if that happens because it's a, it's a different kind of prompting technique that we're going to have to do. But uh, that's, that's in the near term future. Beyond that, I can talk a little more. <laughs> um, so within Honeycomb, there, there's a variety of parts of the product where it's really powerful, but people struggle to do a particular piece of it. So, uh, in our service level objectives feature, you, there's a part where you have to select what your service level, service level indicator is. It's an expression that returns either true or false based off of computing something on your data. Most people, when they go in to create a service level objective, do not have a service level indicator available on hand that represents what they want their SLO to be about. And they often really struggle to figure out what that thing should be and create that expression in the first place. 
And this is a very similar problem where it's text input, natural language input to text output, uh, an expression that computes true or false based off of their data. And we can create that part and then they can go off and, and be much happier creating these things. It's actually something my, my friends in sales have, have been begging me for because uh, it's something that people really struggle with and service level objectives are what help us sell the product a ton. And if we make that easier for people to use, then you know, better, better to do that. But large language models on the whole, I, it, it's a little hard to say. I expect more accuracy for sure, but it, we're, we're still stuck in a hard technical spot right now where the models that are more accurate are really slow. And like for our use case, and I imagine the use cases of many, many other software shops, slow models are just not going to cut it. Like it's compile time versus runtime sort of difference. If you have a compile time problem that you're trying to solve, if it takes a minute, that's probably okay. Mm. Um, but if you have a runtime problem, you got to solve like we're in an incident right now. What's going on? What's slow? Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. You, or, you can't. Or, or even a chat GPT application. If you throw something at it, you won't need a response back quickly, or you might as well just use a search engine and probably get to approximately the same result in the end. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, I expect the open source models in about a year's time that are coming out right now, they're, they're nowhere near as, as powerful as the proprietary models from OpenAI. I expect that to change a bit uh, as some, there's going to be some startups that are, that are, or maybe some big companies too, but there's going to be some tools that are going to come out that are going to help you fine tune and train these, these trainable models because right now, uh, or they're called fine tunable, but it's, it's training the GPT 3.5 and GPT 4. You can't, you can't fine tune them. You can't say, Oh, well, you know, this is my, my domain. And this is the only thing that you're going to be good at. It's impossible to do that. So you have to do a lot of prompt engineering right now. Benefit is you don't need an ML team. If you want to fine tune an open source model, you need an ML team, you need AI stuff. And most organizations don't have this. So I do expect there's, there's going to be a lot more demand to, um, to try to automate more of that stuff so that you, you, maybe you need to hire like one data scientist instead of five. And maybe that data scientist, their job is not necessarily to do all the mechanical pieces of like actually training this thing and fine tuning it, but making sure that, okay, the data that we're gonna be using to fine tuning is actually the right data that's gonna accomplish our goals. I'm a little skeptical that everybody's gonna move to this model because let me tell you, the open AI stuff works pretty well. Um, it's got an easy to use API and it does not cost a lot of money. So uh, that's really hard to compete with. And so I, I expect cost reduction to go down, but I expect uh, certainly on the proprietary side, they're gonna be building out ecosystems for things. Like there's, there's the chat GPT uh, marketplace right now. I expect that OpenAI is going to allow you to host chat GPT inside of your own application and have like, it's cut off from like the world basically. Of, of like the other integrations, but you effectively build your own integration point with your own product and you use chat GPT, you know, at some cutoff date within your own app to do that. If we had that, that would have allowed us to ship a lot faster than just using the API itself. Um, I expect a lot of LLM providers to do that same thing. And lastly, I expect a lot of people to run into some of the problems that I did and come away pretty disillusioned <laughs> with the stuff. And I don't think we're going to have robot overlords. I think we're going to end up with a trough of disillusionment next year. Yes. And, and we're going to get some more productivity afterwards, but it's, it's, it's just going to be incremental. It's not going to be game changing. 
Yeah. And, and if folks are interested in reading the article that you wrote, it's available on the Honeycomb blog. We'll include a link in the show notes with that. Uh, Philip, are you a social human being? Is there somewhere people can find you on the internet if they have follow-up questions or just want to know more? Yes. Yeah. So uh, this should be in the show notes as well. I'll have my email that anybody can reach out to. I'm on LinkedIn. You can similarly do that. I'm on Twitter. I'll chat with you everywhere there. I also have my website, philipcarter.dev, where I infrequently blog um, on my personal stuff. I should probably blog more. I guess everybody should. (laughs) Um, And you can't really talk with me there, but it also has other links where you can interact with me. Awesome. Well, Philip Carter, thank you so much for being a guest today on Day 2 Cloud. And hey, listeners, thank you so much for listening. Virtual high fives to you for tuning in. If you have suggestions for future shows, we would love to hear them. You can hit either of us up on Twitter at Day2CloudShow or fill out the request form on Day2Cloud.io. And uh, any vendors that might be out there listening, you know, if you've got a cool cloud product you'd like to share with our audience of IT professionals, you could become a Day2 Cloud sponsor. You'll reach several thousand listeners, all of whom have problems to solve. And hey, maybe your product fixes their problem, but we'll never know unless you tell them about your amazing solution. So you can find out more if you're interested at packetpushers.net slash sponsorship. Until next time, just remember, cloud is what happens while IT is making other plans. <laughs>